0: Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? If you can, join me as I read my way around the world, one historical journey in one country at a time. My name is Annie and this is my podcast Around the World in Six Books. Here we go! Welcome back. In episode two of this reading journey through South Korea, I'll go over the contents of book one, A History of Korea, second edition by Kian Moon Won. And towards the end of the episode, I'll also introduce you to the second book in this reading journey. So who are Koreans and where do they come from? Those are the two questions I mentioned in the encore section of the previous episode. I was hoping this book would help answer. And does it? I think it does. Let's see how. Who are Koreans? They are a population with thousands of years of history and traditions, and who celebrate their own language. They're also survivors of devastating conflicts who are relevant in world affairs and economy, and in the case of South Korea, has become one of the most advanced nations in the developed world. Uh, Let me give you a few examples of how one actually conveys all of that information by selecting key periods and historical figures and through a description of them, illustrating the evolution of Korean society from the year 2333, before the common era, when the state of Joseon, which is the precursor to Korea, was uh, founded at the mythological level, uh, to our days. Okay, so I'll give you a few examples. So uh, the state of Joseon, it's founded in the year 2333, before the common era, um, by Koreans, mythical progenitor whose name is Dangan and Gong is not just anyone he is the son of the god of the universe who mates with a bear that became a woman and just in that one story we get to learn about geomancy and shamanism because these are two forces and belief systems that remain uh, uh present in korean societies to this day Geomancy because Jangon is not born any place. He's, bo- he's born in a mountain uh, that happens to be sacred. That is sacred mount Baekdu. So that is all related to geomancy and the importance of selecting specific places. And if you think, oh, well, that's just ancient stuff, nope, consider this. If you've ever visited or plan to visit or ever heard of Seoul, which is the um, capital of South Korea, the location was uh, selected on the basis of geomancy, hmm? not just any place. And there is also shamanism, which um, involves the belief in the spirit world and the connection to surroundings. All of that is in that one story. Then he goes through a description of the ancient period and how Korea was uh, a disjointed series of kingdoms, not necessarily having a collective Korean identity, but that changes in the 7th century of the common era when there were three uh, major kingdoms that is Goguryeo which is the closest one to China and is the one that Korea derives its name from uh, also it was advanced at many levels including politically economically etc um there is Baekje which was known for its cultural achievements and then there was sheila and Sheila does a little tree creek and through an alliance with China uh, leads to the downfall of these two kingdoms and unifies the peninsula. But that unification is not um, is, does not lead to political unification. there's instability. And by the way, it's by Sheila that this whole idea of a co- um, collective Korean identity, the narrative behind that, it's initiated because it serves to justify uh, the unification of the various kingdoms and also, you know its alliance with China uh, so political instability until the 10th century when Tejo, the great founder of Korea politically unifies the Peninsula and um, issues the 10 injunctions which set the benchmark for political governance of uh, the Korean Peninsula amongst other things that he does it's also during this period that Buddhism becomes the t- state-sponsored religion that lasts for several centuries, so does Gari, the Goryeo dynasty, which is what Tejo establishes, but things don't last forever. And at the end of the what is it, 14th century or 13th century, um, downfall of the Goryeo dynasty, Korea becomes part of the Mongol Empire. At this point, there's a lot of uh, cultural exchange and intermarriage between the Mongol elites and any other classes and Koreans because, in part, um, Lady Ji becomes the Imperial consort, consort and gives birth eventually to the um, heir to the Mongol Empire. But the Mongol Empire doesn't last, downfall, and the Joseon dynasty is established. Amongst other things, uh, that dynasty produces <coughs> King Sejong the Great, who Uh, has plenty of accomplishments, and one of the ones that he's most widely known for is that in the 15th century, I think in the year 1446, he promulgates the Korean alphabet. It's also during this period that Buddhism no longer is the state-sponsored religion, and Confucianism becomes the norm that sets um, a lot of the political structure and values, and it also shapes... Uh, classes, relations amongst the different institutions, and initiates at a larger, grander scale um, uh, the disenfranchisement of women. But also, there is a stigmatization associated with the children of concubines, who are part of a secondary status class, which one refers to as sub-aristocratic, and that includes other people like the military, government clerks, scholars, etc. During also the Joseon Dynasty, corruption becomes endemic in the Korean Peninsula. So if you ever watch like a Korean series or movies and you see that uh, corruption is a theme, all of it became becomes apparently endemic, like widespread during this particular period. So um, there are a few wars in between, clashes and conflicts, uh, but. Towards the end of the 19th century, uh, Japan finally is able to establish a political and uh, otherwise presence in Korea and that eventually, there is a period between 1897 and 1910 in which Korea declares itself to be the Great Korean Empire. Um, But it's tricked in 1905 and 1910 into signing two treatises that first made Korea a protector of Japan and in 1910 uh, officially annexes Korea to Japan, making it a colony. And colonialism, Japanese colonialism in Korea lasts uh, between 1910 and 1945, and in the interim period, uh, in 1937, Japan once again, not the first time, tries to establish East Asian domination and tries to invade China through Korea. Um, and, amongst other things, mobilizes all of Korean society towards the war effort and state-sponsored modern-day slavery is actually used uh, to satisfy the needs of that war effort. And one of the examples of that, one of the most notorious uh, and unfortunate examples of that, is the establishment of the so-called comfort corps, prostitution rings. Uh, Through these rings, uh, Korean women were either tricked Or just openly forced into sexual slavery but there were other forms like in the labor use for weaponry or mineral exploitation right Korea becomes independent but things are not done there because Cold War politics come into play and Korea is divided into two with the North being supported by the Soviet Union and China and the South the United Nations um, the United States and Western allies eventually Uh, There is an attempt to unify the Korean Peninsula when the North invades, I mean the South also wanted unification, but the North invades the South in 1950, uh, there is a lot of human suffering, a lot of human costs and loss. Uh, And then Stalin dies, and in 1953 an armistice is achieved. And then Korea is divided into two nations and they take on a life of their own. And one actually goes into how that has evolved with the North having like a personality cult around the ruling family. And uh, the South going through a series of right-wing dictatorships supported by the West because it's the Cold War War politics. And in, in 1987, uh, it finally transitions into democracy. And all of those subjects one actually covers, did I mention it's 245 pages only this book? But that doesn't mean that the book feels disjointed. If you're not very uh, knowledgeable of uh, Korean history, you won't know the difference in terms of what you're missing because everything seems to flow. Everything is interconnected. The examples that he uses, even though are variated, are um, satisfying enough to allow you uh, an understanding of uh, Korean history in general. Now where do they come from? Koreans come from Korea, but they've also been strongly influenced by a fluid yet very ambiguous relationship with the Chinese and they have a history of suffering but also of resilience in the face of foreign invasion and intrusions in Korean affairs by peoples like the Chinese, the Mongols, the Japanese, and eventually Russia, the United States, the French, and others. So Koreans are from Korea, but they haven't been completely isolated in any way from the rest of the world, right? And all this, one manages to tell this story in a very succinct. I mentioned the 245 pages, over 4,000 years of history, right? So that's abbreviated and accessible because the book is free of academic scholarly jargon. It's intended for a general audience and it's very easy to read if you are not familiar with any kind of historical theories or anything like that. Mind you, you may need to read for the dictionary from time to time. But that's an opportunity for self-growth, you're expanding your vocabulary. So it's just a few times. Other than that, it's very accessible, very easy to read. But it's very multidimensional because this book is not just about historical facts. You get to learn about the different institutions like religions, belief systems, family. You get to learn about language, uh, technology, uh, sports. Uh, Language-wise, there are a couple of proverbs um, and references like the six to five to the um, June 25th, because that's the South Korean term for the Korean War. And then he uses the following proverb, which is in page 113. And it is the breaking of a shrimp's back when caught between fighting wells. Um, that proverb uh, describes uh, Korea getting caught in a conflict between Japan and the Chinese, and he summarizes it into the uh, title for this section as a shrimp caught in a well fight. And I was reading this proverb, I was like, this is so much fun. It's it's amazing, it's a shrimp caught in a whale fight. It got me thinking about how perfect this proverb is, is to describe a lot of situations where I've either been caught in a conflict between uh, others who are way more powerful or uh, other situations that I've witnessed or know of. And the proverbial, I think, no pun intended, example of, of that is a parental fight and a child getting caught in the middle. The child is the shrimp and the parents are the wells, you know? So um, what else could I learn about Korea if I were to look at its proverbs? That was the question that I, I posed uh, to myself. I, that's why I decided to uh, choose the second book in this journey, which is titled, Don Rome's uh, Please, Tigers, Frogs and Rice Cakes, a Book of Korean Proverbs by Daniel D. Holt. And that's Tigers, Frogs, and Rice Cakes, A Book of Korean Proverbs by Daniel D. Holt. Um, That's the second book in this journey. If you can't find this book, then I would recommend that you just, and you do want to read, then you just find any book on Korean Proverbs and see what you learn, you know, whether you have fun with it. That said, this brings us to the end of this book episode. If you don't want to listen anymore, then you're done. And thank you for listening. If not, there is an encore to this episode. Thank you for listening to my podcast around the world and six books. One historical journey and one country at a time. My name is Annie. Have a lovely day. section thank you for staying tuned how about that first book summary episode completed dear listener i hope it was fun for you if not fun at least entertaining in the best possible way There was a lot I didn't get to cover in the episode, so I'm including a couple of outtakes in this encore section. And besides that, I'm also going to go over uh, some questions and subjects that I ended up looking up on the internet or just doing as a result of the reading, okay? So here we go once again. I hope you have fun. Where do Koreans come from? And my answer to that question during the episode was, well, Koreans come from the Korean peninsula. They just come from Korea. If I would have been someone else listening to that answer, I would have gone, well, that was a wasted question and answer. And I figure I would reflect on that here in this encore so that you can see where that question uh, started from and what I was hoping I could learn more through the book. Dear listener, work with me to get to the bottom of this question and the answer that was provided in the episode. When someone asks you, where do you come from? Or when you ask of someone, where do you come from? What assumptions do you make about the answer you're going to get? So when you ask or get asked the question, where do you come from? What are the assumptions behind that question? Think about your own perspective and your own experience. I can tell you then from mine, first, the question itself implies movement. Coming from means that there is an assumption that you haven't always been in that place. Even if your family has existed and lived there for hundreds of years, at some point they came from somewhere else. And so did you, right? So. Uh, The irony here is that when I really think about it, one doesn't cite uh, a lot of uh, theories in his book, but I'm about to because it all connects. There is this theory, the uh, out-of-Africa migration theory, that proposes that at some point, common human ancestors left the continent of Africa increasingly and populated the rest of the world and some of those individuals made it to the what is now the Strait of Bering and when it was still connected uh, through land and crossed to the Americans and then populated the Americans and those are Native Americans ancestors according to this theory so even as far back as that uh, there is movement implied in the question of where do you come from you know Uh, in my case culturally speaking so I ask of you Consider your own cultural heritage. Uh, Mine is Euro-American. For the past few generations, we have been based in the Caribbean and the United States, and before that, it was Iberia, primarily, right? So in the Caribbean, you have Africans. That wasn't a voluntary migration, but still. So you have Africans, you have Indians, you have the Chinese, you have Europeans from many places like uh, Spain, Portugal, um, you have the English, Dutch, the French, so that's just, oh, and some of the Native American population, not originally from the Caribbean, they were actually from South America, They were Native Americans from the, the continent that actually started to inhabit the Caribbean islands, so even in that just one region, there's this tremendous diversity of people either being forced or voluntarily getting to the region coexisting and commingling with one another. And then if I go back to Iberia, where Portugal and Spain are, for hundreds of years, uh, uh, conquest, um, immigration, uh, invasion. All of those things allow for various populations to commingle, coexist with one another. You have the Etruscans, you have North Africans, you have Middle Easterners, you have Romans, the Moors, Celts, uh, the French, uh, Visigoths, which is like French and uh, Germanic tribes. You have, well, the original inhabitants are Iberos. Um, but still, so many populations then got there, stayed there, and then left because then Spaniards ended up in the Americas, the Caribbean, the Philippines, and elsewhere. So you can see, when someone asks me, where do you come from, well, I can say I'm from the Caribbean, but then they go, well, what about your family? And then you can just trace that. And if you've ever taken one of those ancestry DNA tests, how much do you find it do you just find one single group two groups three groups just consider that and now let's look at koreans even their slaves were actually koreans consider that uh modern day sl- well any kind of slavery hereditary slavery ended in korea in 1894 1894 with the Gao reforms but Koreans have tended to have Korean slaves. They didn't go elsewhere and get them. Even in, through, in despite their history of invasions, they haven't had a foreign population establishing itself for over extended periods of time in the Korean Peninsula. They've come, they've gone, maybe they've lived there a little, commingled, but there isn't a chunk of the Korean population that comes from elsewhere. So that's why When I asked that question, I couldn't really give a very rich answer at that level. Um, And that's that. What did you answer to the question? Now, here's an outtake from the episode. It goes briefly over how looking at women's rights and roles uh, within society can help us to understand uh, institutions like the family and other elements of society. It's also during this period then Buddhism no longer is the state-sponsored uh, religion, and Confucianism becomes the norm that sets um, a lot of the political structure and values. And it also shapes uh, classes, relations amongst the different institutions, and initiates at a larger scale um, uh, the disenfranchisement of women. And you go, oh. A feminist perspective no not a feminist perspective when you look at women's rights and their role within society you have a chance to look at family as an institution in general and who is involved who has rights within it and how all of that connects to the greater society <gasps> what through women's rights yes indeed why because Confucianism amongst other values emphasizes Uh, respect for elders, parents, and ancestors worshiping rituals. And worshiping rituals apparently are very expensive. So what happens is that up until that point, according to one, women have been kind of on on an equal standing with men. They could inherit uh, property and uh, uh, leave it off for their kids. But because ancestor worshiping rituals are expensive and costly, Wealth allocation within the family uh, starts to get geared towards the eldest male child, and not just any one of the male children happens to be the one from the official family. Which means that anyone else who's younger within the official family, like the first wife, um, it's left out out of the chunk of that family wealth. But also the children of concubine, which not only are left out mostly but also there is a stigmatization associated with the children of concubines. Dear listener, do you have a national holiday celebrating your native languages alphabet? Because Koreans actually do. Remember King Sejo the Great? One of his accomplishments, the whole promulgation of the Korean alphabet in 1446, Well. In part, as a result of that, they have a whole national holiday celebrating their alphabet. I was so excited when I found out about this. Uh, One doesn't mention the date. It's October 9th, by the way. I ended up Googling that. That it got me excited thinking about Spanish and the literary uh, and rich linguistic traditions associated with the language. And temporarily, it made me happy. I was so excited. I was like, what if we did have a, la- a date celebrating Spanish as a language, and then no, it went down a very dark rabbit hole because it dawned on me. Then, Spanish is a language of conquest, too. So, uh, populations who may have experienced genocide as a result of conquest, say in the Americans or perhaps even the Philippines, may not be happy about celebrating Spanish in any kind of way. So, that happened then, but. If you were uh, to have a national holiday celebrating your own language, dear listener, would you be happy about it? Are there any negative or positive associations with it? Perhaps you think that Korea and South Korea in particular are these places that are very very far away from you, depending on what you are at in the world and that you they may not even be related to you in any way. However, I did mention that Korea is, South Korea, it's considered to be one of the most advanced uh, nations in the developed world, right? So I want you to take a moment, dear listener, to think if there are any stuff or people in your life who may actually be Korean. Mm. Take a moment, think, look around you, any technology, any individuals you may be familiar with, any, say, sports, anything. Could it be Korean or South Korean specifically? If you've taken that moment and you realize perhaps you have a Samsung phone, or you have any kind of equipment uh, from uh, made by LG, or even if you drive a Hyundai, then you have a trifecta there because all of those three are actually South Korean. So you being South Korean. Can we turn that into a verb? Hmm. And if any chance you start to think about people and sports, well, as it turns out, South Koreans have top elite athletes in Taiwan, golf and archery. So you may not think you know of Koreans, but perhaps even your favorite athlete may be Korean. I remember that mythological foundation myth of Dangon, um, who's the mythical progenitor of the Korean people being born out of the mating of a bear who became a woman and the son of the god of the universe. When I was preparing for this episode, I decided to look into other mythological foundation myths and see if there were any themes. So I remember from studying what a few years ago, a lot of years ago actually, some of the pre-Columbian uh, myths and there is like a lot of chaos and uh, harmony and stability and then more chaos and birth and rebirth. These are all themes that existed like I think it was uh, God making man out of mud and then realizing he had no soul, then destroying him and then making him out of corn or maize. So, Uh, I also decided to look at Greek mythology and that for me turned out to be a mistake because Greek mythology is quite gruesome and I don't mean that in a judgmental way I'm just simply saying it was shocking to to learn about some of these uh, stories like I think uh, based on a prophecy Kronos doesn't want his children to be born so he holds them from being born and then at some point I think it's Zeus the one who's born and then kills his father and there is incest and a lot of murdering and... uh, Yeah, kind of made me go back to the whole Korean uh, mythological foundation and realizing that perhaps uh, Bear becoming a woman and mating with the god of the universe wasn't that out there. So, what kind of mythological myths do you have in your own society, dear listener? So, is this uh, project about South Korea or Korea in general? Because you may have noticed that in some instances I just refer to Korea in general rather than South Korea. But let me specify, Uh, South Korea as a nation is very new. It was established in 1948 as a result of um, independence from Japan and then the whole partition of the peninsula into two. So in reality, because it's a very new nation, you have to look at everything else that came before. And that's thousands of years of common heritage with North Korea. So the project is about South Korea. But I think at this early stage, there's going to be a lot of references about Korea in general as we become familiar with everything else that pre-existed before the partition. There is so much that I still haven't discussed, but I have to bring somehow this episode to an end, even its encore sections. So I am going to leave you with some of the stuff that I ended up Googling because, dear listener, is there any way that we can watch or listen to anything at this point and not end up looking stuff up in the Internet as you're either listening or watching? Is it possible? Do we do it? Do we not do it? So here are some of the stuff I ended up looking up. Well, Hangul's date. What's the date? Turns out October 9th. Fansori. Uh, one goes over a lot of artistic forms. He includes pansori, which is an opera style, sijo, which is a type of poetry. And by looking at that, I ended up at the uh, UNESCO site because pansori is considered an, inte- what is it? Uh, cultural heritage, um, immaterial cultural heritage. So is kimchi and kimchi making. And if you don't know what kimchi is, that's fermented vegetables. And that's for both Korea and North Korea. I also ended up looking up places like the observatory which is mentioned in the book because some of us get our cues of where to travel to from the books and the history books that we read do you um i looked up Gorial Saladin ceramics because it would be nice to go to a museum and see what it looks like um, any references to k-series to books specifically like the tebek uh, mountains he mentions resistance art and specifically a uh, ballad. Then it's titled Montandu. I looked at the video and I looked up at the translation. Um, like I mentioned, the the foundation myths. And did you know that Louis Armstrong was in Korea at some point? So I looked up to see if there was video. Of that couldn't find any, but that got me thinking that. Um, uh, Nat King Cole was also very popular in Latin America, particularly Cuba and that he was in Cuba at some point. So is there a video of that? I couldn't find any but it would be nice to actually see him because if you've ever heard Nat King Cole sing in Spanish, oh my god, and he sang everything under the rainbow like uh, rancheras, boleros, chachas, you name it. That man could sing in any language. So if you read or you listen did you google anything and if you stayed this far back into these many encore segments then thank you for listening and i hope this was fun for you it was definitely fun for you